having experienced this, I can't go back. And, and the thing is, of course, by doing this, I had to let go of the expectation that that percentage of the grade, that 10%, would have anything to do with the content of the course, which seems paradoxical. And yet the, the result, the, the meta result of having a student think about music and culture in a profound way as a performer it is, I mean, that's what we, I think that's what we want. Hi, I'm Will Robin, and this is my podcast, Sound Expertise. You might be looking at this episode and wondering about its intimidating length. It's our longest to date, and perhaps about its topic, too, teaching music history. It's an old adage in academia that teaching and research are entirely separate domains. And so if this is a podcast where I talk to my fellow music scholars about their research, which it is, why are we focusing on teaching? And if you're not a musicologist, you might also be thinking, well, I don't teach music history, so why should I care about any of this at all? Well, I've got two moderately spicy takes for you. First, teaching absolutely is research, because great teachers have a specialized knowledge of pedagogy that they have built over many years in real time in their classrooms and in reflecting on those classroom experiences. And second, even if you don't have anything at all to do with teaching music history, I think you will find yourself quickly engrossed by this episode, because this is a discussion of pedagogy as a mode of inquiry, as a way of unlocking potential not just in your students, but in yourself, to opening yourself up to new ways of thinking. If you think of yourself as a learner or as a teacher, whether it's in music history or another topic entirely, this conversation is going to be relevant to you. Which brings me to my guests. I am joined by two of the most fascinating pedagogues in musicology today, whose work as teachers I have followed and admired for years. Sarah Haefeli, Associate Professor at Ithaca College, and Andrew Delantonio, Professor of Music at UT Austin's Butler School of Music. Let's turn things over to them and to this deep and insightful conversation. So thank you both so much for joining me today. Um, I'm very excited for this conversation with Andrew Delantonio. Hello, yes. And Sarah Haefeli. Hi, Will. It's really a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So yeah, I wanted to start off by delving briefly into both of your kind of music history pasts. Um, I'm someone who discovered my love of musicology in the classroom as an undergrad, and I imagine that's possible for for both of you as well. Can you talk a little bit about kind of like your own personal experiences in music history classes as an undergraduate student and what that was like for you? Sure, I'll, I'll start. My experience was exactly the opposite. I had a terrible music history experience. Class was at 8 a.m. It was all of the sophomores in one room. The professor lectured without notes. Uh, I later realized that he made a lot of things up. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. We had uh, tests. What, what would he make up? Like, Oh, he, he told us uh, about how, uh, how the Mozart Requiem was completed, which was total fiction in oh, retrospect. Wow. Yeah, things like that. Mm. Uh, he, we had we had tests that we kept and passed on to the next generation. So every class would inherit this bundle of old tests that we would just memorize so that we could pass the test. And there would only be two or three new questions each semester. So (laughs) we all, we all did fine on the tests, but it was (laughs) painfully boring. I remember often waking up from a dream in at the end of class uh, it was really, really a, a terrible experience, but I had a fantastic uh, cello studio professor who was also a musicologist and mm. really challenged me to think deeply about the historical context of every every piece I played. So some some mixed experiences. Andrew, what were your your kind of undergrad music history survey? Hopefully, a better better experience than that. But um, it, I, I, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, so I should start by saying I went to the family business. My uh, stepfather is a medieval historian. Oh wow. um, And um, 
I actually, I'm a recorder player uh, and I came to the study of music as a recorder player. And in fact, I was extremely fortunate when I was a high school student that Tom Kelly was a, a assistant professor at the five colleges where my stepfather taught. And he was willing to have this uh, pimply teenager play a recorder in his band in his five college early music ensemble. And so I, um, I'd had experiences before then, but right there I was, I was able to be mentored by somebody who was a, an extraordinary pedagogue uh, and also a great musician. Uh, and right away I was really enthused by the notion of playing music and studying music. And so I went off to college, I actually thought I was gonna, gonna study psychology then I got a C in my first psychology course and, and stayed with music as well because I started doing some music. Um, uh, I, I was just telling my students this in my class. I, I used the very first Norton anthology, um, which had just been published. And one of my instructors was in fact, the person who had created the first Norton anthology, Klopp Liska. Um, and so uh, I don't remember my survey very well. Uh, it was a two semester thing. And I think it was similar. I don't think people were making stuff up, but it was not dynamic. Um, I think I hung in there because I thought early music was interesting. But I, I would say, looking back to how I was taught, uh, I learned a lot, but I don't teach that way. Right. I mean, I think what's striking with both of you and the reason why I wanted to talk to both of you, especially given your not so great experiences in the music history survey is that both of you are interested in this as something to change, but you're also like, I mean, a lot of scholars teach and most of us teach um, and a lot of us teach a music history survey, but not all of us necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about pedagogy as an issue. How did you each kind of realize that thinking about teachers teaching, researching how to teach and actually publishing on teaching was going to be kind of an important part of, of what you did as musicologists? I'll, I'll start on this one. Um, I, now it's my turn to say that it happened by mistake. Um, in a way, um, I think I realized as I got underway in teaching, that I cared a lot about it, that I cared about making sense of it in ways that was not just about imparting knowledge, but getting people excited about information because I had in my own way, but I realized that not everybody did in the same way. And so I started reading about it and make sense of it, but, but really, um, uh, in a way, I'm a bit of a Johnny come lately to the systematic exploration of pedagogy. Uh, I think I've really only been doing it in the last decade or so. Um, and I'm, I'm not a spring chicken, right? I mean, I'm in my later 50s now. And, and I've been teaching a very long time before I actually looked into the, call it science if you want, art, uh, the, the methodology. Uh, pedagogy. I, I was gratified to see that some of the things that I come up with um, that I picked up on fit that. And also I was humbled to realize some of them didn't uh, and that it was necessary to take a step back and think about outcomes, but also to be careful about certain ways that outcomes had been instrumentalized um, to mean certain other things that I wasn't necessarily in agreement with. And so I've been especially really interested, but this is again, even more recent in the last maybe three or four or five years in questions of critical digital pedagogy and so forth. But, but again, I, I think other folks and, and Sarah is definitely one of them have come to this well before I did um, in terms of methodology. Well, I don't know that I've been doing it so much longer, but I um, started teaching at University of Northern Colorado as an adjunct faculty member and, and was really actually very fortunate to teach a wide variety of classes. So started teaching a history of rock and roll class and then took over the survey class and then taught a lot of integrated arts education courses, collaborating with my music education colleagues, movement specialists, visual arts specialists. And I think those experiences outside the music history core really shaped how I thought about how people learn uh, what classes should look like. I also taught theory and sight singing. So I just had this really wide variety of challenges as a, as a teacher. And then when I got the job at Ithaca College, Ithaca is a, a teaching institution with a very heavy teaching load. So I um, took a colleague who had just got, gotten tenure, uh, a theorist, Debbie Rifkin, who's a brilliant pedagogue took her out for coffee and asked her, okay, how did you do it? How did you get tenure with this teaching load? And she said, 
you have to turn your classroom into your laboratory. Mm. Mm. And she introduced me to the field of the scholarship of teaching and learning and, uh, and started a conversation with me about, well, yeah, tell me what, what you're doing in your classroom. And I said, ah, I'm not doing anything interesting. And she said, no, no, no. Tell me what's going, what's, what's going on. And uh, she, she drew out of me the fact that I was having my students blog and I was so impressed with the writing outcomes and really encouraged me to do a, 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 a scholarship of teaching and learning research project based on a blogging as a very effective writing tool. And that started my path. So it was, it was a little bit out of necessity that, that when you're, when you're teaching, you know, a, a four, four or four, three load of, of courses, you don't really have time to do those deep research projects uh, in your historical field. Right. Right. What was it about, how did you come to kind of getting students to blog and what was it about that, that kind of unlocked a, you know, new, interesting avenue for, for how you were teaching? Yeah, I think this started when I was teaching history of rock and roll. I taught that class online quite a bit as well. And I really enjoyed the being able to use the discussion forum as a way to kind of preload a, uh, a synchronous discussion. This was many years ago before any of us were using the word synchronous and asynchronous every single day, right? Uh, and so I wanted to do I wanted to do that, but I wanted everything that the students did to feel authentic. Mm. So I think writing on a discussion forum doesn't feel as authentic as creating a blog. And this was back when blogs were hip, uh, you know, almost ten years ago. Yeah, and. Uh, and the potential that the students could have actual readers. Right. right. So I found that the, the authenticity of the task and, and the idea that someone could actually be reading this made the writing better. They weren't communicating to me, who knows infinitely more than they do, uh, <laughs> or at least in their view. Right? Their minds. <laughs> yeah, in their minds. Right. It's not true. Right. But right. Uh, instead of that awkward teacher-student uh, issue of audience, they now had potentially actual audience and, and they, the, the grammar got better. The content ba- got better. They started owning their own authority. Uh, they would connect reading assignments to their own experiences and write about those. And it just, it, it just became so much more interesting to read. And I learned more in, instead of the, them telling me what they thought I wanted to know, which I, I never learned anything new in those kinds of writing situations. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, this idea, I guess you have on the one hand students who are commu- learning a different way of communicating. Um, right. So like Andrew, do you, you have kind of structured a lot of assignments in that, in that same way, right. Of, of trying to not make it basically the regurgitation of information that they learned the previous day um, as, as kind of regurgitatory as possible, but trying to, to find ways for students to be more creative in, in the kinds of things that they write and, and talk about. Yes. Um, and, and again, that's something, I mean, this, uh, I'll, I'll credit uh, Sarah, among others, as inspiring this move. I mean, the, it really is one of these things that that you think, well, of course you want people to write authentically from their perspective of what they find meaningful. Uh, but it is also true that that is not the way that I was taught to write music history as an undergraduate student, right? Or, or do music history in a survey context, at least. Um, I was kind of in the more advanced courses. And so the whole question of how do you help students like uh, like Sarah said, embrace their knowledge, embrace their authority, embrace their um, what what they have to offer. Uh, I think um, so. Yes, uh, I'll, I'll briefly speak to one of the assignments that I've tried this semester um, because it's very fresh in my mind. Uh, I sort of decided um, towards the last minute of finishing the syllabus last in the back in August that I would take about ten percent of the grade and have the students do an assignment that. Uh, on something that it was not necessarily related to our course subject. Um, so um, w- we've come up with, my colleagues and I, a set of large scale historical questions that, that we provide to the students at the beginning of the first 
course of the sequence that are, you know, here's what historians really care about, not dates and, 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 and names, but, you know, questions of identity, questions and so forth. And so there's a list of possible bullet points and questions and I ask the students, um, take a look at these, pick one that you think is interesting and think about how you will find out about this topic in the music that you care about in this course. I see. Um, whether or not it's the, the music we're talking about this semester. And I want you to sort of document your process in doing that. And then at the end of the semester, again, drawing on excellent work by other scholars of teaching and learning, I came up with a set of rubrics uh, through which they could sort of talk through this. And I, I, students have started submitting this and actually one student submitted it early. So I took a look, it's about two days ago. And it was it, it was stunning. It was like, I looked at this and I said, this is why I did this. I didn't know why I was gonna do this, but I did this because a student really embraced the notion of careful, thoughtful scholarship about music, about something that the student cared about. And it was not about the time frame we looked at, but honestly, the, the odds that the student will come out of the course thinking about music and culture and history in a way that's much more profound than what they started with are so much greater than any other more standard, call it regurgitation or factual based or, or standards based, even though everybody has to learn the same information. Uh, that's, uh, that never happened. I mean, I've been teaching here a long time and this is the first time that I've looked at an assignment and said, this student has clearly um, moved to a very different level in their thinking about what it means to study music and culture. And it's mind blowing. I mean, I can only hope that the other 87 students in the class will have done likewise. They won't, right? And that's fine. Uh, sure. But even one is, it's, it's so stunning. Uh, so I don't, I don't, maybe this is similar to what uh, Sarah experienced is that having experiences, I can't go back. Yeah. I can't go back. Oh, and, wow. and, 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 it's, and, and the thing is, of course, by doing this, I had to let go of the expectation that that percentage of the grade, that 10%, would have anything to do with the content of the course, which seems paradoxical. And yet, and yet the, 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 the result, the, the meta result of having a student think about music and culture in a profound way as a performer it is, I mean, that's what we, I think that's what we that's want. That's what we right? want. That's the outcome. I, 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 that's what I want. Let's put that right. And I, and I think that's what we often say. We want these students to think more deeply about, but then are we giving them the tools to do that? And for so long, I wasn't. And now I'm starting to, and it's very satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's striking. And, and I want to talk, ask Sarah to jump in, because I, I know that you've thought about the, I think the exact same thing, but like, there's the, I guess, maybe there's two kind of like meta shifts happening in a lot of different people surveys that they're running the undergraduate music history surveys, um, which for listeners who don't know, is basically like people who come to college generally to study music are probably planning on becoming professional musicians in some capacity. And then us musicologists have a year or two with them to kind of teach them whatever music history is, which was once like, you know, uh, Mashoda, I don't know, John Cage or whatever, and has now become like, there's, there's the, the one big shift is like, let's change who we're teaching about and, and the genres we're teaching and the, you know, the composers we're teaching. And then I guess the other shift, which is what we're talking about now. And I, I want to keep talking about is like the shift of like, is this a music history sequence or is this a kind of like what do musicologists and historians do with music kind of like teaching them how to be, how to think like us in a way. And Sarah, yeah. I know that's kind of been, your central right. preoccupation. I mean, that's exactly it. There are two issues. One is about diversity, inclusion in the survey and the content that we're teaching. And then the second is really the, the how, how we're teaching it, what we're teaching. So I had a pretty significant crisis in 2015. Uh, we had uh, our own uh, Black Lives Matter protests on campus. Uh, the students uh, initiated um, vote of no confidence in our president who then uh, stepped down. So it was a pretty, oh, wow. pretty significant moment. And during the protests, one of my students came to me and said, said, Hey, we, I think we should talk about what's going on on campus in this class. And my first knee jerk reaction was like, no, we have every single day scheduled in that March from a show to cage, right? Every single day is I give them this on the syllabus, you know, exactly what we're going to read, what we're going to talk, what the lecture is going to be about. And I thought to take a whole class day to talk about this means, you know, losing a whole genre of music. Of you lose music. like a century. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. You lose a century. Mm -hmm. And 
luckily I was wise enough to not answer right away. And I thought about it and, mm. and I, I said, okay, but you have to lead the discussion. And the mm. student said, sure. <laughs> and so, you know, or organize the room and in a circle, I sat on the outside of the circle and the students uh, talked in very clear terms about how frankly racist the music curriculum was about how they didn't feel prepared as educators to go out and teach in diverse communities that they were very disillusioned by the stress of the curriculum uh it and it was hard to hear and We've, I finished up that semester and then I had a, a sabbatical the next year. And I spent that year rethinking how I was going to teach. Oh, wow. So instead of the march from Michaud to Cage and, and me lecturing, I decided that first of all, the content had to change. But that secondly, there was a problem with the container. There was a problem with the whole frame of, of music history. So I spent that year thinking about outcomes, right? What do we want the students to be able to know and do at the end of the class? And, and I thought about, well, what is it that I do as a music historian? I don't spend a lot of time memorizing dates and opus numbers. I don't even spend a lot of time with style recognition. And when I got the job at Ithaca College, they asked me, you know, what is the ideal outcome for your students? And, and I said, I said, yeah, style recognition. They should be able to recognize you know, if this is Baroque or classical or late romantic or expressionist, right? Uh, I decided that that wasn't really central to what musicologists really do or really care about. So I uh, was simultaneously working on a book about writing about music and was thinking very carefully about what is it that scholars do when they're doing research? So we're typically start with a topic, but investigate that topic within a very rich context. That context could be economic, it could be uh, cultural, social, it could be a context of previous research by other scholars. Uh, but out of that rich context, we formulate a research question. Right. We gather information somehow. Sometimes it's by reading secondary sources. Sometimes it's by diving into archives and looking for primary source materials, doing interviews, looking at ethnographic uh, data. And, and then we have to interpret and analyze that information. And I think that's something that we've really failed to teach is, is to teach students how to interpret and analyze data. And so that's how I've shifted the music history uh, sequence uh, at Ithaca College. Uh, and the other framing problem was the whole march from this, you know, teleological march from Michaud to Cage, which assumes that Cage is somehow influenced by Michaud and that there's been this tidy little, uh, you know, the, the salamander to the lizard to the, <laughs> you, get, <laughs> you get my yeah. teleological, yeah, the, mm -hmm. this evolutionary march. So we now instead look at case studies that are designed to inspire further inquiry on behalf of the students. And so the students read um, sometimes a scholarly article, sometimes a piece of primary uh, writing or uh, a, listen to a podcast, like, well, like an episode from your podcast, Will. Oh, and, and then they discuss it, but then they have to apply the same kind of methodology to their own research question. So this is like like uh, Andrew's kind of what I what I'm thinking is his 10% project is kind of like his Google Genius project, uh, <laughs> and where they they have to say, hey, you know, a further question that's inspired by this case study is X, and 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 their projects are beginnings to a further analysis and interpretation because of course in the span of a survey course they just don't have time to fully explore those. So, so my outcomes have shifted from being able to regurgitate information on a test to being able to articulate a musicological question and to begin to figure out how to answer it. Right. And you, I think we've talked about this be before, but like the day-to-day -day classroom, you actually just have the students working in groups answering these questions, right? 
which is like, to me, I could, I'm like trying to, I'm still trying to imagine being able to do that. But can you talk a little bit about like what that looks like? Because it's, it's very different from any classroom that I've, I've kind of worked in. It's very different. And it's, and it's very sad for me because I love lecturing. I love the song and dance of it. I love the performance aspects of it. Uh, you know, you have a captive audience that has to laugh at your jokes. It's just so much fun, right? Well, it's like I podcasting. Love, right. The, the choreography of it is just yeah. really, really fun. And yeah. and I decided I had to give that up, right? If this was going to be a truly empowering experience, then I had to decenter myself, especially as a white, cisgendered, heterosexual female in the classroom to decenter that authority. And so, so I took a, a course at uh, Harvard Business School on how to teach case studies, which was fantastic. That's the signature pedagogy for business schools all over the oh, world. Interesting. And, uh, and, and really studied how uh, case study teachers guide discussion in the classroom. It's this very active Socratic discussion process. Uh, the difference is, is that business cases usually present a problem that needs a solution hmm. and mm-hmm. music history cases aren't necessarily problems that require a solution. Sometimes they might be, but more often they're situations that might inspire further questions. So, uh, so really studying how to ask questions, what kinds of questions to ask, how to dig deeper in the students, how to get them to that state of uh, a little bit of frustration that really excites the energy in the classroom so, so we spend a day for, for every case in a, in a big kind of case study uh, discussion. And then the rest of, I'd say, probably a two-week unit is spent in groups working on, on their own projects. And then typically they, they get to present those projects to the rest of the class. Wow. Andrew, how do you, let's maybe pre-COVID say, how do you, how does a typical day in your classroom work? Do you lecture? Do you break students into groups? How do you try to balance the kind of like learning outcomes versus information versus? Yeah, that's, that's really great. And I really appreciate Sarah articulating that so well, um, because not only do we, some of us like to perform and choreograph uh, and create arcs of narrative that really some of us found um you know, that, that's part of what we found entertaining uh, as students, those of us who are, have PhDs. Um, and students still, um, I, I know I'm getting about this roundabout way, this is, this is the way I go, I apologize. Um, students still want that. Uh, I get, and I have a number, I, I systematically use mid-semester anonymous surveys about, okay, what do y'all think is going well? What do you want more of? What should we do? And I always get a number of students saying, we want more lecturing. Uh, while I, and I know that that's actually not going to be the most productive way for things to happen in the class. So, it, it, I mean, students are, are, are primed to want that uh, and to want that kind of narrative. And so providing some of that, I think, is relevant. So directly to your question, pre-COVID, um, I also, like Sarah, had to force myself to stop lecturing. Um, and, and I did so semi-effectively the last few years, uh, partly by um, porting a number of my lectures into uh, recorded mini lectures for students to listen to before class. Um, so all these cool slides and stuff like that that I developed over the years, I recorded and gave to students before class and then I couldn't use them anymore, right? It was sort of forcing myself not to have that, that resource to riff off of. Um, w- what I found frustrating and what I didn't have a resource to resolve until this COVID semester, and what's and now I'm thinking of for next semester, so in a way I'm sort of in the middle of this, was that um, I teach uh, about 80 to 90 students in a cohort. And you know, unlike Sarah, um, I, I fortunately I have TAs and I my teaching load is not quite as heavy, but it is a large group. And with a large group, um, discussion can happen well in the breakout sessions that the TAs lead, but it cannot happen particularly well in a group of 80, especially in the room that I have been put into, which is a recital hall. So I'm on stage. Uh, and becomes and it's a actually, performance. Yeah, it, it becomes it, this. It's very difficult. I mean, and I will get off of stage, but the, the physical space itself makes it much more difficult, not just for me to, to move away from a stage, from a frontal uh, space, but for the students to, to turn to each other and move into groups. Right. So that's been a real, a, a real difficulty. Um, also, because I make a point of not obligating students to come 
to class. Um, I always have, a, I've even pre, pre-synchronous times, right, pre-COVID, I had an option for students to do something if they did not want to physically come to class. Because I came to the conclusion a few years ago that making students, nine o'clock in the morning especially, making students be there, uh, there's always going to be a few who, for reasons, I mean, both personal, legitimate, and just it's a mandatory class, so you can't make me enjoy it, are going to have, are not going to be there because they want to be there. Uh, and so I've often had a small, I mean, by halfway through the semester, only about half of my cohort shows up, which is okay because those who show up are ready to do the work and those who aren't showing up have other things they're supposed to do instead. And so I'm okay with that. Um, but uh, I, I've been in a space that has not been collaborative. This semester with COVID, teaching online entirely, and I, I was fortunate to be able to teach entirely online, on Zoom, yeah, th there were some things that weren't great about Zoom, but I could break everybody into Zoom rooms and have them discuss. And and it, I think it was fantastic in, in terms of engagement, commitment, and I had to think creatively about what to have them do. Um, and now I'm thinking, actually, I just got in touch with our scheduling person saying, okay, can I move my class into the orchestra rehearsal room? Uh, because at least- Oh, interesting. Reasons, right? I mean, several, first of all, that's where there's not a stage. But second of all, because the space where people are used to, to, to working together, right? I think space is so important. And there, we do have rooms on our university campus that are collaboratively usable, but they're in high demand. And plus, I, I, you know, the, the metaphor of these performers, as Sarah says, most of these students, actually, I guess you were saying this, most of these students are coming to music school thinking they want to be performers. So put, bringing music history into their performance space, I think will be interesting. And it will give me a much better physical chance to get people to go into breakout rooms and work right. in breakout rooms. So, so I, I guess I've, I haven't answered this question maybe quite the way that it was set up to be yeah. uh, answered because, because in a way um, I have not been satisfied with trying to flip or however you want to think of it, of, of making the classroom more participatory as a large cohort because the space in which I've done it has made it difficult to do that. And, and, and you know, habit has made it super easy to rely on talking. Right. right. Be, because because uh, as you can hear, I, I, I love to hear myself talking and, and I'm so brilliant at it. And and, you know, and, and I'm I am objectively a pretty good lecturer in the grand scheme of things. Right. Right. That's right. right. Yeah. But uh, but it's not as effective. I, I think for us um, to loop back and maybe this is a question that maybe you were going to come to uh, Will. So I'm, I'm going to guess what your question might be uh, to loop back into how this came to be, right? This, this shift of, of our teaching, my teaching came to be. Um, I was again, fortunate that I don't know, Sarah, if you have to, if you have to rely on, if you're the one essentially teaching most of the, the survey uh, kinds of courses at Ithaca, um, I'm fortunate enough to have a, a relatively solid cohort of colleagues and we came across with us with a curricular change that our ethnomusicology colleagues uh, pushed for actually we all pushed for it frankly but um, we're um, moving we moved from this um, chronological teleological um, uh, evolution based uh, Whiggish if you want to call it that um, you know moving towards the future because everything becomes better um, linear narrative to uh, we created a new course uh, to be taken the first year of a student's uh, career in music that is a much more um, cross-historical, cross-cultural music and culture course that is more case study based. Um, I don't know that we're quite as, we have quite gotten our heads around the case study approach quite as well as Sarah has, but, but it, it sets students up to think about big questions before they come to the survey. And, right. so, and so it's challenged me to be prepared for that but also helped me be prepared for that. Um, and it's also because we had to bureaucratically um, shave hours off of the sequence courses in order to create this new course, it's given me less time to quote unquote cover material, which has made the idea of coverage even more absurd and therefore has given me the chance to not, to, to hang on to it even less. Um, I guess the other piece is, again, working in the College of Fine Arts overall, I've realized that most of our colleagues outside of music gave up on the notion of the comprehensive survey a very long time ago, uh, for whatever reason. And they have not expected students to march through the uh, chant to the present or whatever, however we're gonna phrase it. And I think one of the things, and, you know, we have this textbook that everybody uses. Uh, I think that the monolithic presence of the Burkholder Grout Poliska book, terrific as it is in a lot of ways, has has driven 
our sense of obligation to that trajectory. And I think that's going to be an interesting question moving forward is, is as people are letting go more and more of textbook uh, resources. I mean, Sarah, I don't know, maybe you moved away if, you see, if you're working on, um, on case studies. If you move away from that, then in a way that opens you, right? Yeah, it frees things up, right? It frees that's things right. up. Um, it, yeah. yeah. That the idea of coverage has always been a myth. Even though it seems like coverage, right? That we have this, this pressure of coverage, that that textbook has always been a construction. Things have mm -hmm. always been left yeah. out, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and I think that's becoming increasingly an obvious statement. But I think ten years ago, it it wasn't so mm -hmm. so self evident. I was in a you know, we pushed through a big music history overhaul a couple of years ago, and I was kind of shepherding it through these various committees, and I was in a. A, a meeting with performance faculty where we were talking about it and, and a choral um, conductor said, uh, well, what about, I mean, if you do all of this and you, you know, don't teach all the masterworks you're going to, like, who's, when are you going to learn about the Duraflay Requiem? And I was like, I've, I've never heard that piece. And Is I've never taught that piece. <laughs> and then I was like, what about, what about, Busted. what about Schubert's masses? And I was like, you think I have more than one day to spend on Schubert and I'm going right. to spend it on his right. masses, like, which are in the Burke holder too. And, and that's an mm -hmm. issue too, right? Is like, mm -hmm. when you only have one day per composer and maybe four per era, like you are, you are teaching the classics and that's, yeah. Um, but to return to like, I mean, the coverage thing and the, just to, to kind of talk a little bit more about the why of like moving away from lecturing, um, you know, Sarah, in, what, in one of the articles you've written about your pedagogy, you have this great line, which I just want to read um, and talk a little bit about, which is you write that your, your goal is to is giving students a sense of ownership over their learning. They discovered that they were ultimately in charge of their own educational outcomes. They were no longer passive recipients of facts but we're part of the creation of the body of knowledge we call history. Can you talk a little bit about that, like empowering students in that way? And also like, I, I'd love to talk about some specific examples that both of you have of students who felt empowered and like what that kind of meant to them coming out of the classroom. Yeah, exactly. So I, I wanna say that students have always been in charge of their learning outcomes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they either mm -hmm. come to the table or they don't, right? Mm -hmm. And. And, and me designing the perfect um, content or the perfect lecture or the perfect assessment has not helped them come to the table. <laughs> they have either decided to do it or not. And I, I, found, I found this to be true years ago that 10% of the students, no matter what I did in front of the classroom, I could be tap dancing every day and they would still learn music history because they were curious and active and they're listening and they're talking to each other. And 20% of the class would fail no matter what I did. I could be the most genius teacher and, and they, just, they just weren't engaging. And it by really fail, meant, you're not saying fail the class. You're saying fail to learn, which is right. different. Yeah, yeah. I exactly. And uh you know, it, I came to realize that had very little to do with me. It had to do with the students. So how do I support the students in the significant gifts that they bring to the classroom and, and trusting them that they're here because they want to learn. Be, and this is something that I've really learned from Andrew too, that, uh, that, that trusting that they're going to bring their skills, their abilities uh, to the classroom and that they're, if they're not showing up, it's not because they're lazy. It's because something else that's significant is happening in their lives. That's blocking their ability to, to show up and, and by penalizing them with a grade or some other sort of penalty is, is, is not going to inspire them to show up. It just makes it worse in many cases. Uh, I, I'm not sure this is the, the question, right? So, Oh, the question is about how to inspire these students to take ownership. Yeah. One of my colleagues, um, Dr. Beatrice Alesco is a music education colleague and she wrote her dissertation on democratic classroom practices in K through 12 music classrooms. And, and it's really brilliant work, but uh, thinking even, even in the earliest cl um, classes, music classes, that students can choose and decide and and engage in significant democratic ways. 
and that this always has a social justice edge to it as well. Mm, the empowerment. The yeah. empowerment, right? Um, and that everyone is empowered. Everyone can be part of the story. Everyone can be contributing to the body of knowledge. So um, this is this has been quite significant when we're studying a, a case that even on the surface might appear to be a pretty canonic uh, case. So for, for example, we were, we did a case on, um, on the Stravinsky Rite of Spring. And, uh, and the students needed to then articulate their own research question about the Rite of Spring after reading um, Tamara Levitz's uh, book chapter on, on racism at the right. Mm -hmm. And this group of mostly music education majors said that they wanted to look at uh, the Rite of Spring and how it shows up in the movie Fantasia. Mm. And I thought, at first I thought, Oh gosh, this is, this is such a cop-out. Like this is the yeah. only thing they know about the Rite of Spring mm -hmm. because they, they grew up watching Fantasia in their music classes when their teacher was sick or whatever, you know? And, uh, but you know, again, it's, it's like Andrew said, you have to force yourself to not intervene, right? You have to force yourself to step back and trust the students. So, uh, so I said, okay, you know, and, and I said, it's not yet a research question, right? What is your research question? So they started, they started doing the research and found out that Stravinsky was actually very unhappy with the product in Fantasia. So then their question became, why, why would he have been unhappy with it? And they ended up doing a side-by-side -side comparison between the reconstruction of the ballet and and the visual elements in Fantasia and came to the conclusion that there was so much movement in the original ballet and that movement was absent in the visual representation in the oh. animation. Oh, interesting. And cool. that's actually a very profound observation. And I, I'm watching their presentation thinking, I could imagine seeing this presentation at, at a conference, right? At the Society for American Music Conference. This is, this is incredible. So, um, that's an example of, of a group of students that I originally thought was not very gifted, that was really taking an easy way out with a project, but ended up, ended up coming out of it this wow. very powerful and, and profound observation and, and research, true research. Andrew, um, you've done a lot of writing and, and thinking about what you call cripping the music history classroom, kind of rethinking the classroom experience from the perspective of disability. Can you talk a little bit about how that works, how you've kind of your, your history with this idea and, and universal design of uh, and learning? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I should say that I, I come, um, I initially came to this topic um, out of interest connected to um, families and friends. Um, I, Two of my younger family members and and several of my friends uh, have disabilities that are more or less visible. Um, I also, in, in the last couple of years, have kind of gained a uh, even more salience in that I was myself diagnosed ADHD and learned a lot more about how I had and hadn't learned and um, engaged with material uh, through this. Um, uh, there's a great deal in what we teach that is about normalizing and standardizing. And a lot of that is about outcomes and um, that we want to have everybody coming out of a course with a particular set of outcomes. Um, but oftentimes we provide our pathways to those outcomes are limited. I mean, everything's gonna be limited, right? Anytime you include, you also exclude. Um, and this is something else we could talk a bit about is the whole question of, of making our teaching more inclusive is, is a process. Uh, and be, given non-infinite time and not infinite resources, we're always gonna be leaving some things out and it's always gonna be provisional. But the, the idea being that um, we make assumptions about uh, our students' abilities, um, their capacity for certain kinds of learning on, uh, on the basis of our own learning. Uh, and um, 
on assumptions that we make about what is legitimate and illegitimate ways of, of demonstrating knowledge and so forth. So my own learning, frankly, uh, about this, the universal design for learning approach, um, which basically at its core is about the need to open up both um, ways of showing information, uh, ways of the students then uh, demonstrating understanding of information um, in multiple ways, multiple pathways. And for me, the one that's most salient is multiple um, reasons to engage, so the affective uh, side, which is something that, that, that Sarah was talking about earlier, right? If a student will bring what they can, um, this also connected to other um, theories of understanding and pedagogy that ultimately say a student will do what they can, always. Uh, and if they're not doing something, it means that they can't. It's ultimately, e even the won't aspect is really more about can't than won't. And it's, and if a, even if a student is, is, thinks that they are not going to do it, it usually is because there is some barrier to their ability to accomplish. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a very radical rethinking um, because it requires, again, as Sarah was saying earlier, we were both saying earlier, a letting go of a lot of authority. Uh, this notion of universal design for learning, this word universal is a perilous word, right? I have um, some disabled friends who make the point that access, something that's accessible, is it's not a steady state thing. Something that's accessible to a person for a purpose. And um, every person will have a different purpose and different abilities with which to engage that thing. And so it's not enough to just make something accessible because that's not gonna work for some people to do what, it, what they will. Um, it's a principle that I've been trying to make sense of. And I think it also connects uh, to not just disability, which is the, the main kind of advocacy that I've been familiar with, but also with issues of culture and race, uh, with privilege in general, because a lot of people who, who have not had certain kinds of cis white male privilege have had fewer um, opportunities to build certain kinds of understanding of what we now call standard academic practices. Um, and so that's another piece of how I try to build my pedagogy is to give many different ways for students to demonstrate knowledge. I mean, it's, you know, I used to have tests. I don't have them anymore. I used to have a research paper because you gotta have a research paper, uh, but you don't have, have to have a research paper. You, you can give students a chance to build tools for research as, as Sarah was mentioning, and then have an, the outcome be entirely different, but more meaningful to them, more real to them, to their classmates, and to the future of the profession. How many of our students are going to be writing research papers like we do um, right. after the, the survey? Yeah. yeah. So, Sorry, go ahead, oh, Sarah. Yeah, I was please. just going to say part of, part of my motivation for a universal design for learning approach is so that students never have to ask for accommodations. Right, the class is already accommodating to the to the the best of of our ability. Um, so yeah, first thing out was tests because the the, the primary disability or the or um, need for accessibility that students come forward with is because they have anxiety. So anxiety, depression, or right, yeah, yeah, right, it's yeah. just huge. The yeah. the. The, the threat of a grade, especially since they are attached to the student's scholarships at a very expensive school like Ithaca College, the, it was just crippling uh, their ability to do well and to take intellectual risks, which is really what we want them to be able to do, right? To ask a truly open research question instead of one that they think, oh, there's resources in the library in this. You know, so, so that was... Uh, that was one of my motivations uh, for a UDL approach. And the other one was exactly about this issue of uh, inclusion and diversity. We assume that people are like we are, right? <laughs> but, but musicologists are strange creatures. We <laughs> work alone. <laughs> we like to read. We like to write, right? Uh, and, and I found that uh, uh, reading quite a bit of studies that that minoritized populations often work better in groups. They do not uh, suffer from the hyper-individualism of uh, white America as uh, uh, to, to the same extent. And that's one of the reasons why I turned to using group work 
Now, some students that do have some sort of social anxiety, although there are very few uh, of my students because they have to work in ensembles, right? right they play right. in chamber groups, right? They're they, used to group work. It's part of they're the musical used to experience. Group, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but even so, I've had students that can still collaborate through Google Docs, right? Um, Andrew, I was surprised to hear that when you made attendance optional, that your attendance went down. I made attendance optional and my attendance went up, actually. But we're a different institution and and a little bit smaller. So so that cohort, the students showed up for each other right. to work in those right. groups together. Yes, yes, right. I, I, yeah, I, I think um, I think for for my group again because because the cohorts form around studios more than across the university. Um, there's less, but I, I'll say students have been showing up more after this new freshman class that we've done. That 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 works very hard to to move the cohorts out of the studio. Um, silos and more across a, a collective freshman group. But yeah, I, I, th I think part of it is the size, part of the institution type, but you know, maybe, maybe they're just, what, what you're providing them is more attractive. I have to keep working at it. I mean, it's so, it's everything that, that we've been talking about. It's so striking how so much of this is just about trying to resist who we are, like, like in, in a, in a productive and, and positive way. Cause like, I mean, I, I still don't really assign group work, even though I should, because when I was a student, like I was always the one who hated being in groups because I was the one who would end up doing all the work. Not necessarily because my the other students were worse, but because I was like a type A. Right. I am an, like I became an academic, right? Like it's, right. it's clear. And so, and just all, you know, and I like, you end up, it's so easy to basically find the six students in the room who are kind of like you and, and basically, and get a, a lot of rewards out of teaching those six students really well. And there's no penalty for it. Like no one's going to dock your pay because, and most of the rest of the class is going to do fine. Like there's so few incentives to do, to rethink things. There's so much work. I mean, everything you've been talking about is so much work that goes into reconceptualizing it because it, it, you have to throw out things. Um, well, yeah. well, that's true at the front end. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of work on the front end, but once the semester gets going, it is so freeing. Yeah. It is. So, agree. so I'm not grading assignments anymore, right? All I'm doing is tabulating a group peer peer evaluation scores and their own self reflection score. So I think part of the pain of group work is that you knew that your professor was going to grade it and it had to be good to get a yeah. good grade. Yeah. So that's, that's taken off the table. And you have the, grade, the students grade each other. They're grading each other. Of, yeah. Right. And they're grading wow. each other on how well they work together, the quality of the ideas that they contributed Process, were, right. right. Were they kind is on my rubric, right? Uh, it, it is process instead of product. And, and so my semester has become so much more joyful because now I really am uh, guiding student inquiry, working with them in meaningful ways and not meeting with them where they're, you, you know, questioning, why, why is that marked wrong on my paper? Or why did I get that question wrong on the test? Which took up so much time. So much time and energy. And, and, and I mean, grading, I, I'm sure that those of us who are listening to this, this, uh, this podcast who teach know grading is, is the worst. Grading is the worst thing that you do as a teacher. Uh, I mean, for some of us, it's more boring than others because of the way our brains work. But it, it is, I mean, I, I don't know. Some people may just love grading. But most everybody I've talked to just says, oh my God, you know, it's that time of semester to grade exactly the way Sarah is saying. We're now at the very end of the semester. We're recording this in December. And and I don't, I have very little grading to do. I mean, in fact, the little grading I have to do is just just noting that somebody has done a thing. Right. Pretty much. Exactly. Um, and and, and I, the students are writing a lot uh, in short um, in short chunks, but every day they write something. And so every session I have 80 some um, short little things that students write. But again, I'm, I'm noting that they exist and the student uh, themselves at the end of every unit um, gives themselves a set of points on the basis of how they uh, feel that they have engaged with material. And and I and the TAs who helped me reserve the right to change that up or down. I, I remember when I first started doing this, I got a really helpful caveat from Sarah that said, women often underestimate the quality of the work that they've done if you, if you let them self-assess. And so you need to be able to give them more than they think they should 
deserve, which I've done on a regular basis. Um, men sometimes get it around and that's fine. Um, you know, th there are situations in which you can document um, whether the student has done things, but in the end they need to assess. And what, what I was, uh, you know, I was talking to friends in what, what the real world and who work in business. And we were agreeing that uh, I found this as a supervisor too with, with, uh, with professional employees. Uh, supervisors don't grade employees. Employees evaluate their work and supervisors uh, uh, ratify that. Uh, that's the way that it's done. So in a way, I think the kind of um, ungrading, which is what some people call it, that, that Sarah is doing, that I'm doing, actually trains our students to work in the world much better. The other thing I was thinking about, and, and actually this has just kind of hit me now, and, and I've always been really uh, in admiration of, of the sophistication of Sarah's group approach. And I've always been a little, little bit leery about that, partly will precisely because of what you said is, uh, even though I didn't do a lot of group work as a student, I remember being frustrated. And I've certainly gotten from students in the past, a lot of, oh, I hate group work because I'm the only one doing all the work. But I think a lot, it's so much has to do with how you structure the assignment. Because I suspect that most of the assignments that you did, Will, that you hated so much, were not assignments of the kind that Sarah's putting together, exactly, which are actually right. empowering assignments about process. They were more about, oh my God, somebody's got to do the thing. And then for all the reasons, some of your classmates didn't have the bandwidth to do the thing and you did. And then understandably it pissed you off because you were doing all the work. I mean, I've, I've, I've seen this happen in the past when I've assigned group work that was not good group work. Right. And so, and I, 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 yeah, go ahead. I, I also have the, the groups assigned roles, right? So you can, uh, Andrew Grenade has this brilliant thing where he tells them to think about movie set roles, you know, someone's a director, someone's an editor, someone's a writer, someone's an actor, right? You know, uh, or, or just really clearly identify what part of the project that they are responsible for. And then I've also often uh, coached groups to leave gaps. If people aren't doing their work, leave the gap, right? Don't enable them to not do the work, right? If there's, if you're, if it's a class presentation and then there's a hole in the presentation, there needs to be a hole in the presentation. And this applies to, and I tell them this overtly, this applies to our relationships too, right? Don't enable someone to, to continually not show up for you, right? Let there be natural consequences for not showing up and not doing the work. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's hard, striking yeah. how, yeah. Like we we internalize like uh, grading and evaluating in this particular way as something that's like so natural because we've been doing it's the students are used to it since day one of school. But like it's it's also striking hearing you talk about this thing how grading is so bizarre because it doesn't reflect something that like it doesn't it doesn't grant a set any set of values that is useful in the world. Like, whereas like, if you learn how to show up for people, that's actually, or you learn grade each other on how to be kind, like that actually kind of like is something that you should learn in a classroom that, that works. You should learn in a classroom, right. Right, right. And, it's, and I mean, as we all know, you know, the further up one goes in academia, even grades matter less. Now, of course we still have them. And I think this, it, we're so used to them that we give grades to graduate students, even though we, we're always only basically giving A's and A minuses, but 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 they're still there, and and that's the paradox. Is again, it's a system that's there that's asking us to do things because we've always done it this way, um, and, and it takes a, a pretty significant risk, frankly, to step away and say I ain't gonna do it that way. And I've talked to a number of colleagues who you know are in more precarious positions. I mean, I'm again um, very tenured and very senior, and I can I can mess around, and there won't be any direct consequence by my superiors, even if they're not happy with what I'm doing, which you know. They're mostly happy, but not entirely. But if I were, um, you know, I, I can get away with giving A's to everybody, which I try yeah. to if they show up and do the work. That's and if they right. don't, th then then they haven't done the work and then there's a natural consequence, as Sarah says. But if they've done the work, then that's what I've asked them to do. And my superiors aren't going to come down on me if I am giving 80% A's in the class, but but they might uh, in a different institution with an adjunct. And this is, this is one of the, the tricky things, I think. I mean, people will often say, oh gosh, uh, I'd love to do what you're doing, but my situation is such that it's hard. And, and it, is, it is hard, um, which is why I, I try to put myself out there as doing what I'm doing to provide a little bit of cover to some people, at least at my institution, to do the same thing. At my institution, it's easier for people to say, well, Don Antonio's doing it. Um, and, and because I'm 
structurally respected, then that's, you know, it's harder to object to that. But at other places, it's it's trickier and it's hard to push against. I mean, one of my favorite books is called Ableism in Academia. Um, Jay Dolman is the author. Um, and it sets, has a lot of great things about how disability structurally is embedded in academia, just like racism, just like all the all the the uh, the structures of discrimination that our society loves so much, um, but it, it really is endemic to academia that we grade people because somebody's got to fail. Because if somebody doesn't fail, then how do you demonstrate that you success have is the bench? Yeah, failure has to be exactly. the exactly quality, right. right? Quality is only possible if some don't have it, and and that of course you know fits more broadly to the question of auditions and schools music and things like that, which is a bit more of a rabbit hole that we can go down today. But 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 that's I think part of what we're all up against is is these structural assumptions about what it means to learn, what it means to assess, and that our students come in with. Um, you know, I, again, some of my students I think have felt very empowered by some of the things I've opened up uh, that, I mean, I don't wanna, I don't wanna center myself. That have, but okay, I've, I've, I've opened up these possibilities and the students have stepped in and a lot of them have done amazing things where they left clearly feeling like, huh, okay, I, I have, I really have value. Maybe they felt a little more sure in that than they had walking in the class. Others have, have really struggled in, in a way have, uh, I mean, resisted is a bit strong, but I, I'm asking them to rethink their assumptions too, which all of us have assumptions that we hold dear and especially white, especially male students uh, come to uh, um, assumptions about success and quality and value that they've always had affirmed it to them. And my class doesn't affirm that to them. It doesn't. Well, it challenges the credentialism, right? So yes, I've had students say, Hey, I'm not learning. I didn't, I didn't learn about, you know, the, the Shostakovich symphonies in this 20th century class. And I didn't learn about this repertoire and uh, how am I going to succeed as a professional violinist? If you didn't teach me this. Yeah, right. And, and my answer yeah. is, there's the library, you know, right. like, like what's stopping you from it's, learning this, work, but it's, bro. but it is this idea of you're going to give me the credentials that I need to succeed. And, mm. and, and of course that's, that's not true. I want to go back to a Andrew bringing up this point of uh, privilege that, that he and I share, because when we instituted these uh, revisions to our classroom, when we stopped lecturing, we we're both tenured professors. And, and I do want to recognize that for um, adjunct contingent faculty or junior faculty that don't have the authority to choose the textbook or choose the readings or even choose the structure of the class, that implementing these kinds of changes is very difficult and perhaps even risky. But I do want to say that it's not an all or nothing proposition, right? There are small changes that... that uh, the professors could make. So for example, when I started using case studies, I just replaced five lectures in, in an otherwise lecture survey course with days where we explored collectively in the classroom questions about gender, questions about how do composers make money, uh, things, that, things that just aren't addressed in the, in the textbook. And uh, and when the students left the classroom after those, uh, after those classes, every single one of them said, thank you to me. Mm -hmm. They don't say thank you after I left. <laughs> as brilliant right? as I they am. Should. They I should. They should. Yes. Great. <laughs> yeah. But, but I'm thinking it's not hard, even if you've been told you have to use the Grout, Burkholder, Poliska uh, textbook, right? You have to use the Norton Anthology of Western Music you still can take moments to empower the students in these, in these specific and small, but exciting ways. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. Um, thank you both so much. This was a really fascinating conversation. Thank you. <laughs> we could talk all day. I know. For real. Thank you. Both. Yeah. This was, <laughs> this was really fun. So that was a long talk, but I hope you learned as much from it as I did. Sarah Hafley is an associate professor of music theory 
History and Composition at Ithaca College, and Andrew Delantonio is Professor of Music at the Butler School of Music at UT Austin, and I'm thankful to them both for taking the time to talk with me. On our website, soundexpertise.org, you can check out some links to their writing on pedagogy and other topics. And you might also recognize Andrew's name because he's been extraordinarily generous in creating transcripts for each of our episodes that are available on soundexpertise.org. Thank you again to Andrew for continuing to do this vital work towards making our podcast more accessible. I'm also grateful to my producer, D. Edward Davis, whose work you can check out on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. I'm over on Twitter at Seated Ovation, and I encourage you to follow me and say hello. Finally, I do have one request. If you teach music history or have friends who do so, please share this episode with them or post it on social media. I really think anyone who listens to this will think differently about their pedagogy, and I hope it can make some real positive, productive change. I'm really excited about our episode next week, a conversation with musicologist Jessica Holmes about music and deafness. Stay tuned.